Turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. As you're turning there, just a quick summary of what we have begun to see. We've had uh, Luke, who's been recording the works of the Holy Spirit in the early church for us. Uh, The continuing work of, of Jesus through his disciples. And seeing the Holy Spirit empowering these disciples to be witnesses uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. And they were commissioned back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness, witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see this record of the apostles preaching and teaching as they've uh, began uh, to meet regularly at the temple, doing what they've already been doing, but they were teaching the things that Jesus had taught them. And they would uh, meet from house to house. And they would have these little small groups and groups of people that were gathering together to regularly hear what uh, the apostles were teaching. And the work was primarily in Jerusalem at this point in our study of the book of Acts. But the word was starting to spread, as we'll see today. Uh, this ministry and message of the apostles had gained a following. Some 10,000 plus people by this point had joined this Jesus movement in Jerusalem. And so it was quite a large group of people that were gathering and moving about in Jerusalem, all following Jesus and the disciples' teaching. But this began to create some tension with the Jewish authorities, right? And we've been learning that over the past couple of weeks. Uh, works, uh, miracles and works were being done through the hands of the apostles that couldn't be denied. And um, these miraculous healings were attesting to the message that was being preached by the apostles. And um, they had already been detained, as we looked uh, a couple weeks ago, and had been threatened by the ruling authorities to shut their mouths and stop doing what they were doing. But this didn't stop the apostles, as we saw. They continued on in the commission that Jesus Christ had called them to, witnessing to the things that they had heard and the things that they had seen. They can't deny what they had experienced with their Savior. And they continued. I'm sorry, guys. You don't want us to teach, but we cannot. We can't hold back what we've what we received, what we've seen, what we've heard. But last week, we had a little bit of a a, a close-up look as to the church and what was going on there. The great unity and the care for one another that was expressed among the believers there. And then we also saw how that unity was threatened by, uh, by hypocrisy within the church. But the Lord stopping that and judging it swiftly in protection of his church. But Luke continues to describe the unstoppable work of God, the move of the Holy Spirit through the apostles as tensions ramp up with the ruling Jewish authorities. And so uh, our main point this week is that God's work cannot be overcome, no matter what. And uh, if we look at chapter 5, verse 39, now there's, this says... This was actually the words of a Pharisee, an unbeliever, who said, if this work is of God, you cannot over, 
throw it. And how true are his words, even the words of somebody who was not a follower of Jesus. If this work is of God, you cannot overthrow it. And so we're going to see that actually in some ironic ways throughout this passage that we're looking at today. So if you're there in Acts chapter 5, say amen. Amen. All right, we're going to start in verse 12. Let's read together. It says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed." So we see the continued growth and the power that was exercised through the church. Signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles, these miracles. It was a vibrant time of ministry through the apostles. They were teaching regularly, gathering together. And we see that these signs and wonders that the the disciples did were proof of their uh, furtherance of their divine mission. So we see today we have some false ministries that base their whole agenda around healings, right? These are ministries that are out there that have, uh, have only a motive of growing their own ministry or enlarging their own pockets. And it's not a new concept. This has been an attack from the beginning of the church, we see in Simon, as Simon the sorcerer, as he's called in Acts chapter 8, who had practiced sorcery. And uh, he had lost his following as the word of God had gone out. People started to turn to Jesus, and, and they were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was amazed at this work of the Holy Spirit that was going on. And so he goes up to Peter, and he offers him money. He's like, give me the power to be able to lay hands on people as well. And he was jealous of what was happening. He wanted to... He was trying to gain back that popularity that he once had. It was, the emphasis was on his own person, his own interests. But we have many throughout time who have risen up and have created these ministries, even through deception at time, and have amazed, amassed great amounts of followers. People hoping to be healed of ailments and being deceived, taken advantage of. Hopes placed in the healer and not placed upon Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we see here that miracles are a fact of life. We have a biblical understanding of them. Miracles here were a means and not an end. The result was multitudes were added to the Lord. We see these, these great miracles that were happening and to attest to the message that was being preached. And not to build the name of Peter or any other apostle, but Jesus' name. If you remember back at Acts chapter 4, verse 9, Peter says this very thing. He says, if this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, 
by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And we see that miracles line up with the ministry of Jesus as well. The apostles were doing the same things that their Messiah, their Savior had done. The one who had commissioned them for the work. In Matthew 4, verse 23, it says that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so we see this great hand of God, miracles that were being done through the apostles in the name of Jesus to bring glory and honor to him, to attest to the message that was being preached. And we see that there was this continued unity among the believers as they would gather in Solomon's porch. I don't know how many have been with us for a while, but we did talk about Solomon's porch. It was one of the areas within the temple complex where it could house a large amount of people. And they would be able to uh, gather together and, and continue to teach uh, the people. But here we are again at the temple, this place that was meant to be worship of God, and, and yet those who were leading it were so far from worshiping God. They were very much invested in their own interests gaining uh, the keeping and gaining the authority over people and um, missing Jesus as a Messiah. But they were gathered in this public place. There was nothing hidden. They weren't doing their ministry in secret. And the, we see some thoughts about the disciples and the apostles, what was going on. It says that they were highly esteemed in verse 13, yet none of them, the rest, dared to join them. So the rest would have to be in reference to those who had seen what was going on there at the temple complex, who had seen and heard even the teachings of the apostles, seen the miracles, but yet they didn't embrace faith in Christ or become sincere believers. But we see this this esteeming of them highly. They thought good things about them. They were doing a good work, right? But they didn't join them, but respected them. And I think about this at different times, talking to various people who I know are not believers, telling them about the, the recent missions trip that we went to Honduras. Oh, that's a great work. Good job. You know, they're, they're supportive of what you do, but yet they aren't willing to embrace Christ as their Savior. It's an experience that we can have as we share with people. Uh, when we are out here, when we be doing prayer for people in the parking lot, or when we would hand out bread to people, we would invite them to come along and hear the, the word taught, and they're like, well, I'll, I'll give a donation. You guys are doing a good thing. Or, you know, thank you for what you do. But no one will come to hear. And so there's this esteeming, yet for some reason they can't cross, and we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later. I need a drink real quick. 
Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. And really, this is Luke makes this statement in contrast with those that were uh, holding back and not wanting to join them, who, who dared not join them. And Luke, what's really cool is he leaves... Uh, he leaves giving us numbers. Remember, we've been seeing 2,000, 3,000, and many, you know. He goes, multitudes, guys. I, I've stopped counting at this point. Multitudes of people are coming along. He says men and women. And so we see this, this great move of God in the early church. And, and Luke describes some of what these miraculous healings look like, as we've read already in verse 15 and 16. It says that they brought out the sick. And they brought out those that they knew needed the work of the Lord in their lives. This is how the church was growing. Remember, the multitudes weren't growing because of those that were overhearing things in the temple. The, the, the multitude was growing because people were bringing people to hear the word taught. They were going to their neighbor who needed a touch from the Lord, and they were bringing them to hear the word. They were ministering to those that needed that were in need or, or oppressed in bringing them. Now we see one of the most, you know, miraculous things is that they would lay them out uh, even on beds where Peter's shadow may even touch them. And we see a type of example of, of this type of faith recorded for us uh, in Matthew in chapter 9. Do you guys remember the story of the woman with the issue of blood? What she say to herself? If I could only touch his hem. There was something about this, this faith of just getting to the place where she could be touched, Jesus. And, and maybe that's what we're seeing here. That, that there was a faith that was exercised that if I could just get where Peter's shadow would touch me, uh, I could be healed. And they were coming to hear, and they were bringing people to hear the message that was taught. But this also had a, a, this thought process was rooted in this ancient culture. They, they believed and thought that one's shadow was actually attached to oneself. And in Jewish law, even the most strict form of it, if one's shadow even touched a corpse, one was in, as unclean as one who physically touched the corpse. So you can see this was a thought process. That there was this element of oneself attached to the shadow. But the public's emphasis on needing to be touched by healers may be even drawn from superstition of the time. Power as a substance was a, a pagan magical concept. And so and that could be understood because we have people that are coming out of pagan cultures, pagan elements that are being brought to Jesus. And so they're, they're assuming that he may function in the same way that they were accustomed to. And they're, we see the grace of God, that God still meets their needs through, this, through his appointed representatives, the disciples and the apostles, even if there wasn't this full understanding. But they had faith that if God is God, he can work in such a way. And so we have a multitude that is coming in, in, in receiving healing. And then we see another multitude in verse 16. What's it say there? It says, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. And who were they bringing? Sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. I love that. 
There's power in the name of Jesus to heal the broken and the lame, the hurting and the tormented. Those that were receiving the message of Jesus were finding healing and freedom. And really, what a contrast to what we are going to see. We have the religious elite that the church is going to encounter, the apostles. These middle class, sufficient in themselves people who have no need for the, the message of the apostles. They are totally content with what they had. They were actually more concerned, as we'll see, with what they could lose if the disciples were left to continue. But what's amazing here is all were healed. People started bringing their neighbors to the place of healing. It's an amazing statement from Luke. All that came were healed. You see, this ministry of healing began with Jesus. There were periods of little people that would heal other people. God would use them to heal. But when Jesus came, he shows up on the scene and he begins touching, as we read earlier, and healing, and and commanding unclean spirits to leave. And this ministry continues through his disciples. But it also foreshadows the day when Christ will return. When he sets up his kingdom and there is no more sick and there is no more lame. That the forces of darkness are judged and no longer to wreak havoc in our lives or in this world. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and he shall, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, For these words are true and faithful. Amen. So we see the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to heal. No sickness too great. His power, God's power over unclean spirits is revealed through his apostles. And we see that no earthly power is too great as well as we continue on. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation or jealousy, as some translations say, and and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people and all, all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who came with, and those with him came and called the council together, and with all the elders of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. That was going to be a surprise, right? We see the jealousy of the high priest and the Sadducees moves him to arrest these apostles. 
At this point in the apostles' ministry, this was now civil disobedience. They had already been threatened once to cease and desist, and they didn't listen. They continued on. But notice what was provoking the high priests and the Sadducees. It was their jealousy. Why their jealousy? Because they saw these multitudes coming to the apostles, listening to the teaching, taking it in, receiving it. They couldn't argue against the great power that was displayed by them, the, the miracles that were occurring through them. And they also resented their teachings about Jesus and his resurrection. If you remember back, we learned that Sadducees were the theological liberals of the first century. They didn't believe in miracles like resurrection or the existence of angels. You remember that? The Sadducees' disbelief actually makes it pretty ironic that God would send an angel to miraculously free the apostles. Humorous, right? The Lord is good, man. I love that. The Sadducees were a large part of the ruling elite, the Sanhedrin. And we also learned that they were wonderful at politics. Their whole work was to keep the Romans and the Jews happy. And they got to enjoy their, their nice lives. But as we see here, it wasn't very long that they were incarcerated that the Lord brought them out. We see the religious leaders lock them up, and we see the Lord let them loose. And we have the angel of the Lord opening the doors and bringing them out. And what's he say to them? Go back, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so they did that. We're told that they entered the temple early and taught now, there's two things within this section. What man tried to constrain, God released. We've seen the healing power of the Lord displayed over uh, uh, overcoming sickness and oppression. And now we see the power of God overcoming the power of man. God is greater. But this isn't always the case that God would free us from situations, is it? What we do know... And what we have to remind ourselves is that God is always at work. We have some examples of this. He does what he does in a way that he gets ultimate glory. And we are blessed by him getting glory. Here we see the Lord free the apostles. They went through a beating. Later we'll see Stephen killed. But all that did was propel the message of the gospel forward. We see Paul and Silas imprisoned and set free, worshiping the Lord in the prison. And then we see Paul later on is imprisoned, and according to Luke's account, we never see him released. But what we do see and know happened is that Paul, during this time of imprisonment, he wrote epistles. He encouraged churches. He had visitors where he was ministering to them day in and day out. It was in this place of hardship and restriction that we, you could look at from the outside that God's ministry kept going. It never stopped. 
In other words, nothing that happens to us can overcome God's work in and through our lives. Nothing. If we recognize this in a time of tribulation, we will ask and look to glorify God in the situation. If we can recognize this truth, we will be strengthened to patiently endure the difficulty. And if we recognize it, we will be able to minister through it. Because God is with us and God is in control. But what is probably, I don't know, you know, maybe you're like me. What stands out here is that the apostles were so obedient to what the Lord told them to do. They went right back to the place of confrontation. Right back. And continued to teach. And they were told to speak to the people all the words of this life. You know, Jesus uh, spoke to his disciples in John chapter 6, starting in verse 63. And he said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, the same Peter that we're reading about here, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so the angel told them, You need to go and tell people all the words of this life. They needed to know about Jesus. He is the one who has the words of eternal life. In 1 John 5, verse 11, we see, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. True life in Jesus. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The apostles were told to continue teaching the life that they had found in Jesus Christ and to proclaim his death and resurrection in return. Now, we pick up at the second half of verse 21, where it says that the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, this is where it gets kind of funny and some ironic observations here. They gather all the group because they're going to have this trial and they're going to get these prisoners once and for all, right? Well, the guards were guarding an empty cell. The council gathered together to judge prisoners they didn't have. And these frenzy leaders, when they find out the apostles are, are missing, are confused. And then the, the apostles, what are they doing? Exactly what they're supposed to be. Exactly where they're supposed to be. Teaching and preaching Jesus. The confusion on the part of these leaders develops into uh, uh, not understanding uh, they're like, what is going on here but we see the Lord is completely controlled over all of these things and so we continue on in verse two, 22 
that when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison doors shut securely, so we know they, I don't know how they got out, and the guards were standing outside, so they would have had to get past those guys, too, before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24, Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered at what the outcome would be. They, were, they did not know what to expect. So someone came in in verse 25 and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. I love that. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. For they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Wow. We see there that the high priest finally gets their prisoners before them and asks them, he grills them and he says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And it's funny, if you look at that, the religious leaders are now avoiding even saying the name of Jesus. Their hatred for him is beginning to stir. Their hatred for the ministry of the apostles is, ex is being expressed through their own language. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, they said. And they're referencing that the, the growing number of believers, right? Gathering with them at the temple, those coming in and out from, from outside the city. And I read that and I, I asked myself, could you imagine what that was like? Could you imagine if that was actually said about us? About Calvary Chapel Fellowship? That was an accusation that somebody could come against us and say, you're filling Winston-Salem with this doctrine. It'd be amazing, right? That the name of Jesus was getting that much attention through his church. I pray that God would give us that power and boldness to do that. But their concern would, would upset them is when they say, or we see it expressed here, that they, he says, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man, again, they aren't taught, they aren't naming Jesus' name, this man's blood on us. Peter preached this, actually, to the Jews of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know, know Assuredly, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They actually were convicted by this statement. Peter again preached it to the people when they were at the temple, right after uh, he had healed the lame man and people were gathering. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, it says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate 
when he was determined to let him go, you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Peter and John again made this statement the last time that they stood before the religious leaders. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you all. But what's interesting, they're upset about this. But what was it they said when Jesus was uh, on trial, awaiting to be crucified? Look at Matthew chapter 27 with me on the board here. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. Wow. And he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. They were okay with it then. Why are they upset about it now? Because their lives are actually being threatened. That this Jesus actually wasn't done away with when he was crucified. He's continuing to work through his disciples. And it's like a, a, a something they can't escape. And you can see it. The hatred. The strife that is building up. And in verse 29, look, at me, look with me there. It says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. That's nothing new. They said that the last time around. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. He chose to specifically use that word. It's a, it's a more stronger word. That it was the intent of these religious leaders to kill Jesus, to have him murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Essentially, they said, God's authority is greater than yours. We ought to obey him rather than you. Or any other man that would seek to contradict him. What they are saying is that these religious leaders weren't on God's side. Jab right there, number one. But they're saying, you're working against God. God raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, hanging on a cross. You killed him. God raised him. And he is alive. And he is the true leader and ruler over Israel. You guys have nothing in comparison to him. We see that God has exalted him to his right hand to be prince. Jesus is that promised Messiah and Savior. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What else does Jesus provide? To give repentance to Israel. This is where the good news is actually being displayed in the face of prideful man. 
they could receive him and if they would humble themselves and trust in Jesus, they could have all of this too. If they allow God to work within their heart, repentance, they could receive forgiveness of sin. The clearing of one's debt, a release. The apostles are saying, we're going to keep telling people about this message. We are his witnesses. We know Jesus. We have seen him risen. And this is why he came. You guys are welcome to join us. Or you can continue to oppose us. But we have a message and a mission from the Lord. We're going to keep moving forward with it. We see that not only are they witnesses, but they highlight this time, so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. In John 15, 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who uh, obey him in faith, who trust in him, who have believed in Christ, They operate in his power, enabling them to preach and to perform even these miracles. Now the Sanhedrin, this group of religious leaders, would have viewed these statements by the apostles as a direct challenge to their power and even their wisdom, their understanding. And this response from the apostles causes the Sanhedrin to be furious What's it say in verse 33? And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. That word furious is cut to the quick or uh, sawn in two. Rage is actually what uh, cuts their heart in two here. Not the conviction of sin. Remember when they preached Jesus to the crowd at Pentecost? They said, what do we need to do to be saved? What, what do we need to do? They were cut to the heart there. Here, they're cut to the heart. But what cuts their heart is not God's word, but their wrath, their own rage. Not the conviction of sin. To accuse them opposing, of opposing God was an attack against them and their position. And so these men, these religious leaders, were, were told that they plotted to kill them. Until one Pharisee stands up. It says in verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Get the apostles out of here. I have something to say to you all. In verse 35, he says to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that you intend what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. 
And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And it says in verse 40 that they agreed with him. So Gamaliel was probably one of the most influential Pharisee leaders of the day and held prestige uh, as a uh, Jerusalem aristocrat as well. But if you remember, a while back we talked about differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. A Pharisee was a a Jewish sect, a part of a Jewish sect, distinguished by strict observance to the traditional and written written law. They focused on interpreting the law accurately and obeying it precisely. This was of the sect that the Apostle Paul came from. And unlike the Sadducees, they did believe in the resurrection and in angels or spirits. They were typically laymen, laymen, either farmers or small merchants. They were people of modest but sufficient income. They were educated and had time to study and to teach the law. So these ones knew God's word. And Gamaliel held a high position among them. Now, Gamaliel's advice doesn't actually mean that he was a believer. We learn about other secret believers that were a part of this council, like Joseph of Arimathea, who went and requested Jesus' body so that he could bury him in, in his own tomb. But rather, what we learn from Gamaliel's statement here is that he saw this group of Christians, uh, this gathering, as another group of revolutionaries. And, and Gamaliel uses two examples of revolutionaries in, in Israel's history to, you know, support his idea here. But he uses these two examples, Thutis and Judas. I didn't realize how that rhymed before, but uh, both men uh, had gained a following and promised revolution to their followers. But their movements ended quickly after their death. They were dispersed. And they came of nothing. And so Gamaliel offers to the Sadducees, who were so upset, two possible outcomes. If it's of men, it'll come to nothing. And there's wisdom behind what he says here. But if it's God, you can't overthrow it. So Gamaliel says, just wait and see what comes of this. Don't don't get so worked up. And I think he's... Some commentators will say that he's kind of like jabbing one at the Sadducees, like, hey, you guys are overreacting. Just give it a minute, you know, and and trying to um, mess with them in some ways or just one-up them. But there is wisdom, and he was received. And he says, wait for it. See what comes of this, expecting it to fizzle out at some point. That's what he experienced with these other revolutionaries. Or it could be possible that um, being more laxed in, in their going after people at this time, uh, let the Romans deal with it. That's what he was, his suggestions. And uh, he says, you don't want to be found fighting against God. And this was a common phrase in the day. If, if a movement continued, it would have been seen as proof of divine help. Well, God must be with them. It's continuing on. And we can sometimes say that if blessing and and uh, people are continue on and things are like, oh, God must be in that. But that doesn't necessarily mean it. 
but they would view it as that. And to be found to fight against God was not something that they wanted to do. But ironically, it's exactly what they were doing, right? This council was persuaded by his advice. And the council um, we see in verse 41, if you look with me, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 41, or the end of 40, sorry. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that you should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they, he, the council heeds Gamaliel's advice, but not without adding sting to the situation. They took these apostles and they beat them. Probably... 40 lashes minus one, so 39 lashes, and they did that in case they miscounted at some point, not to over-punish uh, them. But they intended to, to beat them, to take their threats further, to discourage the apostles from teaching and preaching. One, one commentator wrote about this, that beaten can also be translated skin. The beating that they received stripped the skin off their backs, and it was no soft option. People were known to die from it. Even if this was exceptional, it was meant to be a serious lesson to the offender. And so the Sanhedrin, we see, repeats their command to cease and desist, this time with the beating. And then the apostles were released. And we're told... In verse 41, so they departed, the disciples, or the apostles, departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Wow. They were rejoicing. Why? What, who can rejoice in beating? In a beating? Because they were counted worthy. It was a privilege to these apostles to be associated with Jesus in any circumstance, even to suffer shame. A privilege to be joined with him in his name, to suffer shame. They suffered shame for his name, for Jesus' name. And when the church uses his name, they're using, literally, they're saying the name. Not like the Sadducees did when they didn't want to say Jesus' name. But the church is using it like the Jews used it to speak of Jehovah or Yahweh. The disciples are applying the name to Jesus because he is Lord and ruler. And they suffered shame or dishonor for his name. It's actually an oxymoron of a sentence. They were honored by dishonor. And I think it's only in Jesus that sometimes oxymorons make sense. But they were honored by dishonor. And this one really causes deep reflection. They rejoiced to be counted worthy to be dishonored for Jesus. You see, the interactions with the apostles, we can see that they were a summary of these different interactions with people. 
We began at the beginning of the message uh, looking at how the, we saw, uh, the people saw them. We saw people sick and oppressed being brought to the disciples, the apostles. The message of Jesus Christ was powerful to change their lives. And those who humbled themselves received that message and received healing. So the apostles were interacting in ministry and in mercy with the people. And then we saw people who held the apostles in the church in high esteem, yet they didn't join them. This message of Jesus, it involves a cost at times. It changes things in our lives to embrace Jesus, to follow him. Relationships will change. It'll come with opposition. And it always involves repentance. And now we see a violent rejection of the apostles' ministry. Three different ways that the people were interacting with the apostles. The message of Jesus stands in the face of man's pride. We are truly helpless sinners in need of a Savior. And that bucks up against some people. They don't want to hear it. But the, we're told that the disciples kept preaching. That situation didn't stop them from continuing to do so, to do what God had called them to do. Every day they continued, all throughout, every day, in the temple and at homes. Going back to the temple was a distinct, bold move in the face of their oppressors. They obeyed Jesus, the Messiah, his commands in the face of opposition. They obeyed Jesus, the Messiah, over the religious leaders of the day. It's powerful. They didn't stop. But I believe that it was the reason they didn't stop is they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was God working through them. And it came from the intimacy of their relationship with Jesus. They couldn't help but continue to speak of the things they had seen and they had heard. And they did it daily. They considered it an honor to suffer dishonor for him. In closing, we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 4. It says in verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, bless are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Amen. We're always the victor in this situation. God cannot be overcome. And we are his people. We are his, the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that can stand against us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great, great word, Lord. The testimonies of, of how you worked in and through your people. The encouragement, Lord, that it gives us. 
Lord, we confess that many times we are tempted to draw back, to remain silent. Lord, to give too much weight to the things that can be lost if we stand up for you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, we pray that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit, Lord. That you would draw us into a deeper, intimate relationship with you. Lord, that we can't help, we can't resist from speaking the things that we have seen and what we have heard. Lord, we, we ask, Lord, that you would do that work within us. Lord, and we pray that there, the accusation could be brought against us that we have filled Winston-Salem and beyond with your doctrine, Lord, with your name. Wherever we reside, Lord, may our home be known for being filled with you, Lord. May our workplace be known being filled with you, Lord, our school, our neighborhoods. Lord, we just we glorify you as the one who has saved us. We glorify you as, as the creator over all things, of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Nothing can overcome you. We praise you. Be called yours. We ask, Lord, that you would just move in our, our hearts today, Lord, as we close in this song, so that you would continue to allow your word to resonate within our hearts and our minds throughout this week, Lord, that you would use us, Lord, according to your will this week. Should trials come, may we stand. Should it be an easy week, may we rejoice. Whatever may come this week, we pray in Jesus' name.